Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Connecticut's longest-running film festival begins tomorrow. Coming up, the director of Connecticut LGBT Film Festival, the president, rather, now in its 30th year, will join us to talk about what films will be featured over the festival screenings. We'll also ask what role film has played in helping advance the rights of LGBTQ people in the U.S. and abroad. The film festival takes place in June, the month where many cities and towns hold events to celebrate gay pride. It's not a month chosen at random. Rather, Pride Month commemorates the Stonewall riots in June of 1969 when police raided a gay club, the Stonewall Inn, in New York City. After that night, Pride demonstrations went on for days. Many view this event as the beginning of the modern LGBT rights movement. Later, we'll speak to an activist in Connecticut about the movement, and you can join the conversation too, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at wmpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. First, we wanted to hear about the new film, Before Homosexuals. It's one of the films being featured at the Connecticut LGBT Film Festival. Joining us by phone is John Scagliotti, director and producer of Before Homosexuals. His other work includes films like Before Stonewall, After Stonewall, and Dangerous Living, coming out in the developing world. John, welcome to the show. Well, it's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you. I wanted to talk about uh, your newest film, and the, the opening shot, it's a beautiful scene where it's a scene of you walking around an island. Take us there. Why were you there? Well, it's a, a small island in Astapalia. And um, it was just by chance a friend of mine had been reading in Greek, uh, who, who, is from, uh, who lives in Greece once in a while, and had told me about this new discovery. And it was a, a discovery of uh, some uh, graffiti of uh, two men, uh, kind of calling out their love. They they said it in slang in those days, and it was quite a find. It was 2,500 years ago, and uh, it it sort of put me in a position of thinking, well, this is a great opening for the film because I myself had been a, a, arrested for uh, an unnatural act or trying to solicit to commit an unnatural act in 1973 in Boston, and I thought, well, here is this sort of celebration of homosexuality 2,500 years ago, and here I am sort of kind of comparing these two periods of time. And so how did we get here? You know, how did that happen where in, in Greece uh, homosexuality was not perceived as something that you might arrest somebody for? And here in the, uh, the United States, uh, uh, soliciting... Uh, in Boston was something that you were arrested for, so I thought that was a, a kind of a kind of an interesting time change in time, almost a time warp, uh, in 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 the sense of how long uh, same sex has been going on in our world and how different societies have kind of had to deal with it. So that was the opening, but it was amazing trip to Greece and uh, and uh, this island it was uh, quite quite a trek because it was very hard to find 
uh, this uh, little piece of Greece video. There was no one on this island. Mm-hmm. It was a very small island. And uh, so uh, I had to get a Greek fixer. They call them fixers in, in Greece, people who help uh, help you out. And so a lot of cousins and relatives were called and little boats were taken. It was quite an adventure to get there. And this is a, a graffiti that people on the island um, know about and they it talk about? It was found recently. Hmm. So before your documentary, take us back to how much um, is known about same-sex relationships in the, the ancient world. Well, that was the reason why I made uh, the documentary was when I was growing up, um, well, not growing up, but when I was growing up, I didn't even know there was such a thing as homosexuality. Then uh, all of a sudden, uh, the sort of period of the Stonewall happened uh, in the 60s, and it became a kind of interesting thing. But one of the things that I realized when we did before Stonewall was that there were no uh, you know, museums, archives that really kept very much material on uh, same sex. So um, we, when we did before Stonewall, in fact, uh, like the National Archives, any major archive never even had categories called homosexuality. So um, we had to go back and just interview people and ask them, you know, for the archives, things we wanted to show about gay life, we would say, you know, is, do you have anything? And people would look under their beds, pull out boxes, shoe boxes, whatever. And that became our archive. And, it, and then we went on later to make After Stonewall, and then all of a sudden there was a real archive because major things started happening after Stonewall. Um, so, but still, very little about the ancient times. It wasn't, and the reason why was because even in America after Stonewall, there was a tremendous amount of um, activity going on but it hadn't yet brought forth the results. For example, in um, education, you could easily be fired if you were a professor and you came out in, uh, in, a, in a university, especially a state university. So it, was, it took much uh, courage and a lot of people like the uh, things like uh, organizations that got together at universities that, that, that fought for LGBT people uh, to get tenure and then research grants. And then all of a sudden we saw in the gay 90s, what I call the gay 90s, a huge explosion of things happened and a lot of things changed. And a lot of professors and teachers and anthropologists and people who were gay were able to actually say, I think some of this stuff is important to find and look for. A lot of it was there. It's just that it was hidden away or censored. And so by having this huge force finally released, people could go and get material. You mentioned the academics. Um, You hear from a lot of them in your documentary before homosexuals. Um, They looked at the Bible. And uh, one clip that we wanted to play, um, you spoke with Professor James Saslow, where he's talking about uh, Michelangelo's famous sculpture of David. Michelangelo's David is a titanic work of art in the Renaissance as an artistic culture. Now, what it means to me personally, he is David, not only the killer of Goliath, but David, the lover of Jonathan, 
David who says when Jonathan dies, your love to me was more beautiful than that of women. Again, that clip is from the documentary Before Homosexuality. A filmmaker, director, producer John Scagliotti is on the phone with us here on, on Where We Live. Uh, that account might be surprising to some uh, to hear that this uh, biblical hero, David, um, there are interpretations that he was uh, gay. Well, you know, our film is about same-sex and same-sex love and same-sex desires. So, um, you know, you didn't have terms like gay a lot of a lot of places uh you know like homosexual itself that's the point behind the film the word homosexual was a sort of scientific term that we or gay people actually were part of calling ourselves that in 1867 so um the concept of what gay uh or 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 same sex is is being reinterpreted as we go, and, and it's not only a question of finding material, it's re-looking at material and seeing it in a different way. I think uh, for James Saslow, the idea of these passages, which are very strong and very homoerotic, would indicate to you, if you just looked at it and you, and you just said whatever, you would say these two men were madly in love with each other. Uh, there's this point in the Bible where, you know, he says, uh, you know, he wants to make a covenant. Now, a covenant is a marriage and uh, in in many places. So, you know, they basically got married. Uh, he, he, he then disrobes in the Bible um, and uh, walks over, you know, and gives himself to uh, a David. Um, and so, you know, you can reinterpret that, but a lot of people did in the Renaissance. There are many paintings of David and and I mean uh, David and and Jonathan become sort of kind of uh, sort of gayish kind of figures if you look at the Renaissance and start seeing how they look at each other in pictures and all that. So a lot of uh, gay people in the Renaissance obviously started painting some of these stories based on what they thought they meant. So it's 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 more, um, you know, who knows if the Bible is literal anyway, so it's sort of like reinterpretations mm -hmm. of the Bible. So going from Greece to uh, ancient Rome, um, if we study uh, Roman culture, same-sex relationships were accept acceptable, part of the dominant male cu culture, but not much was known about women who had relationships with women. Why is that? Well, you know, well, A, sexism, B, uh, you know, I mean, the story about women is, is has hardly been told. Is is my feeling? I mean, uh, it's just a, a history that is bubbling up, especially ancient as well as uh, uh, even present. Uh, you know, are the, you know, women who have who've done amazing things all over the world. Their stories are still to be told. Is is my feeling. Um, but um, I remember when I started looking at these books these professors started, there was no question that they were starting them off by saying, uh, well, this is one of the first books about homosexuality in Greece or whatever. You know, nothing, nothing went on about women, so we can't really uh, say there was. And so this wonderful professor named uh, Bernadette Bruton, she went out and, uh, you know, she didn't believe it. You know, and she started looking, researching, and doing things. Uh, uh, she got a MacArthur Genius Grant, uh, and she was like a, a brilliant person who went out and found stuff. And one of the wonderful things she found were these uh, uh, ancient 
Roman lesbian, what we call lesbian love spells, but they are uh, they used to do love spells. You'd go to the temple and let's say you had a crush on so and so, you could do a spell on them, and hopefully they would come running to your arms. And some of these were found, and most of them were hetero. Uh, many of them were, oh, I guess, all of them, and and those in the early days were heterosexual. And she kind of had a sneaky suspicion that if she went back in the room somewhere, and she would begin finding these lead tablets that showed uh, women to women sort of uh, doing love spells, and this and um, and so there they were, and that was one of her great finds, and we certainly enjoyed putting that in the film. It's one of my favorite parts in the film, is it, only because it's sort of like. Not only is it about women, but it's you know it's it's just a kind of a beautiful kind of concept of uh, wishing this person and putting a spell on someone through the gods uh, to fall in love with you. Your documentary takes you all over the world. We have to mention the Kama Sutra. Um, you spoke with Ruth Venita, author of Same-Sex Love in India. Um, she says that there's more to the Kama Sutra than just the heterosexualized version. Let's hear it. Even the glossy coffee table kind of versions of the Kama Sutra that float around in the West, they're all heterosexualized. You don't have this uh, stuff in it. So people don't know this about the tradition. There's a chapter in the Kama Sutra. It divides people into men who desire women and men who desire other men. And then goes on to give a very detailed description of oral sex, like sucking a mango and so on. Quite non-judgmental and even quite playful. And what else did you learn about same-sex love in India, John? Well, um, you know, Ruth, one of the things about our, our film is that it's just sort of like it touches on a lot of things all around the world. And... Um, you know, Ruth has done some amazing uh, books and, and articles about same sex in India. So sometimes I get a little confused myself in the terms of what am I, what am I, uh, uh, what am I learning uh, from my film, or you know, from all the other material that I've researched because we've done tons and tons of research. But uh, same sex uh, has been a, an incredible um, journey and is part of the Indian culture. Um, as, as we open it up with a, a, a young activist lawyer who says it's in our sculptures, it's in our poetry, it's in, it's in our art. It's just everywhere around them is homosexuality uh, or same sex. And um, so a lot of the temples that we went to, you know, there were these wonderful sort of depictions of the very sexual, of all kinds of sex, but it includes um, same sex, too. I mean, there's heterosex, same sex, I mean, all, oh my God, these temples are really beautiful, and um, so sex was taken as a much more fluid and much more interesting sort of, you know, right out there in your, in your, in your world kind of sensibility in India uh, in the past. Uh, you know, colonial, colonies, when countries became colonies, the uh, Western influence of England and the Puritans and all that sort of made it kind of stop that. But yet, you know, they did, luckily they didn't tear down the temples and they didn't destroy everything. A lot of places they did destroy same-sex sort of uh, materials. But, uh, in, you know, so India had this material. Also, India has, uh, and we mentioned this uh, when we talk about uh, gender, because gender is very fluid throughout the uh, world, um, 
has a hijaz, which were um, sort of, uh, there were in some cultures the ability for like effeminate boys and men to live out lives as women. And uh, and so they became a major force in India um, at, at the time. In the early days, a very highly respected uh, a group of people and sort of as, as uh, our interviewee says that they were um, the keeper of the harems. They were sort of in charge of a lot of things that were taking place in the sort of wealthy parts of uh, India uh, pre-colonial days. So there is quite a past that's pretty amazing. It, it's kind of that way all over the world, except in Western culture, you know, even pre-West, uh, pre-Christian, pre-Leviticus, you know, there was quite a bit of fluidity and sexuality. Uh, but around the rest of the world, there was a lot more fluidity uh, in sexuality and, and uh, you know, not every, and even in marriage rules. And one of the things you learn when you start researching and finally getting into sex and, and gender and issues like that, that, that the world is not, uh, you know, three quarters of the world is not following the uh, Bible or the, you know, it, it's just, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of fluidity out, out there. I, I shouldn't say three quarters because, of the, you know, the Bible does have an, a major impact on a lot of other religions, too. So, uh, but, but there was a tremendous amount of fluidity in ancient times when it came to sexuality. I'm not saying that, you know, homosexuals ruled the world, and there was no way, uh, but they had in some places a much more uh, uh, open situation, were a little safer, and, uh, and, but one of the things that happened is that these seesaws would happen. You would see things happen, they'd stop it, new rules would be made, and changes would happen. And that's our history. That's what's wonderful about just going back. You realize that even today when there's such uh, flexibility and such uh, openness for LGBT people, that could come crashing down uh, too. And, you know, you, you sort of have to understand that these things come in cycles. And uh, I, I only bring you back to what did we call Weimar Germany, where in Germany in the uh, 20s, um, Gay people pretty much had the run of the place. I mean, there were tons of clubs, tons of, uh, you know, you would never even know that you were in a society that that uh, 10 years later would have concentration camps and would have homosexuals being lined up and shot and killed in, in workforces. So, uh, and the materials that they had created and saved were destroyed. Uh, you know, one of the things that I was, because I'm into film, our first gay film was burnt by the Nazis. It was a German film, and we, and before Stonewall, were lucky to find the one copy that some brave souls uh, saved, and uh, and there it was. So, you know, um, they actually did come and try to destroy anything about gay and lesbian life, uh, culturally speaking. The Germans did it, and but yet people were wise enough to like hide stuff and. And we were able to find materials and even, um, but in Germany it was horrible until the 60s. Mm -hmm. So you had like 40 years of just pure, uh, really uh, anti-gay sort of sensibility in Germany, even after 
the war, after liberating the camps, um, the only people who were, you know, they, they were looking for criminals, and they considered uh, homosexuals criminals. So gay uh, people had to stay in jail after the war in the, in, uh, when they liberated the camps. And, and, John, we just have a minute before we go to break. Again, um, this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Uh, we're speaking with John Scagliotti, who um, his new documentary, Before Homosexuals, the prequel to Before Stonewall, we're looking back at, at same-sex relationships uh, thousands of years ago in many different countries. It's uh, part of the work uh, that John has done in his new documentary. Um, you opened the documentary, uh, John, uh, talking about when you were arrested in Boston um, as a gay man. You know, how, what was it like for you? to go through this? I mean, you've been making films about LGBT history uh, for some time, but to, to understand and to see that same-sex relationships that at one point in time were accepted in these countries and, and to see that seesaw, as you mentioned, how did it make you feel personally? Well, it, you know, um, well, obviously I was a, a very scared as a kid. Uh, when Stonewall happened, you know, it, it did a, an awakening for many of us uh, who were in that period of time? This was in America. You needed to get back to America at the time. It was the uh, 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 '60s, and part, you know, '69, '60, the anti-war movement. All these things were happening. So we already had this massive sort of anti-authoritarian, anti-countercultural uh, thing going on, where um, all of a sudden. The Stonewall thing, which I think is the reason why there was the Stonewall rights in the first place, because it was a lot of uh, folks who were part of that counterculture living uh, in New York City, and the, and the Stonewall was a favorite place for, you know, drag queens and for uh, hustlers and sort of kind of people who were living the what we used to call in the life. And uh, so when it happened for me, it was very liberating. It was very exciting to all of a sudden uh, realize that we had, there were others like me, and so I was an activist from day one, from the birth of that moment. So when I went into radio, um, you know, I also started doing some sort of gay programs. I was a news director, but we started adding the gay gay, uh, community as part of stories we would cover in our news, which was pretty shocking and pretty exciting at the time. And um, and then so when I was, I kind of set up that, you know, Barney Frank, who turned out to, who ended up being a congressman and, and uh, but in that time was in the assembly, and he was trying to pass laws. He hadn't yet come out as a gay man, but he was very, he was one of these people who was very active. And he was trying to pass laws in the legislature, and he was failing. And so, you know, I kind of knew if I got arrested uh, for soliciting, uh, you know, that I was going to fight. You know, it was happening all the time. Uh, and gay men were being arrested by the vice squad in, in Boston. And though I must admit, when I was arrested, I felt a lot of shame. I mean, it's kind of you know, being dragged out in uh, handcuffs and brought up to a court and, uh, you know, demanding a jury trial. They usually just, you know, had night court, you know, and just sort of find you and whatever. Um, and then wrote your name up in the newspapers. This is how a lot of teachers and people lost their jobs in those days that were in these busts. 
And John, uh, we're going to have to take a break. We're going to yeah. continue uh, hearing from you. Again, John Scagliotti, this is where we live. It's June, LGBT Pride Month, celebrated in communities across the U.S. Uh, we're going to be hearing more about the Connecticut LGBT Film Festival coming up in the show later. Uh, first, we're going to hear more about uh, the gay rights movement here in Connecticut, and you can join the conversation. 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We've been talking about the new film Before Homosexuals, produced and directed by filmmaker John Scagliotti, who's on the phone with us. The film is featured in this year's Connecticut LGBT Film Festival. It starts tomorrow. It runs over the next nine days. We're going to hear more about the festival uh, coming up. Uh, joining our conversation now in studio is Leslie Gable-Brett. She's co-editor of Love Unites Us, Winning the Freedom to Marry in America. She's an LGBT rights activist. She lives in West Hartford and former director of education and public affairs at Lambda Legal. Leslie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, and happy Pride Month. And now, hearing about uh, John's documentary, looking at same-sex relationships through uh, thousands of years, you know, what really strikes you about some of the stories we're hearing from these different cultures? Well, it, it is absolutely true and, and very interesting and fun to learn about the fact that there has been gender variations and a continuum of gender relationships and sexuality around the globe and, and throughout the ages. Um, so uh, it is true that the kind of version of laws and attitudes we have about LGBT people in this country and in Western civilization is new and is not uh, universal. Um, there's been a lot of variety over time. So it's good to remember that. Now, um, you are, live in Connecticut and, again, an LGBT rights activist. Uh, tell me about um, how you've seen this progression uh, through the years of acceptance, more acceptance here in this country. Um, obviously, there's still more, more work to do as from an activist standpoint. Yes, there uh, but is. tell me what it was like for you coming mm -hmm. out and seeing... Uh, society here change. You know, I have been telling some stories lately about the so-called old days. Um, <laughs> my partner and I got together in the late 70s. We've been together almost 38 years. Um, and I came out when I was in college also in the 70s as a lesbian. And it was much um, more frightening. And uh, we felt at risk. And uh, we had our early demonstrations and gay pride events. Now they feel like marches. I'm sorry. Now they feel like parades and festivals, right? Um, but it, in the 70s and early 80s, they felt that they were. They were demonstrations. And they were, um, they were scary. Um, we felt proud. And we felt strong. But there was a small group of us that marched from the federal building downtown Hartford to the old state. State House. Uh, some people uh, wore sunglasses and hats because they didn't want to be recognized. I know John was talking about people losing their jobs, and there were some teachers and so on. They didn't want anybody to see them. Um, and, uh, you know, people were, but still, I don't want to make it sound like it was only the old days. People were fired. People were beaten up. People were sometimes killed. We had um, a number of tragic uh, incidents in Connecticut as well as around the country. So um, that's uh, some of the feeling of the old days, if you want to call it that. For me, the old days was the 70s and 80s. There were people, of course, who've been working on LGBT rights much longer than I have. Um, uh, and again, I want to say it's still the case that there is violence and there is murder and there is a great deal of discrimination that faces a lot of LGBT people still every day. So we're still working. But it's fair to say, if we're looking at um, residents here in Connecticut, 
it's not you don't have to look far to see a same-sex couple or to to know people that are that identify this way. And isn't that nice? Um, yes, that's true. I mean, Carolyn and I used to have to think twice about holding hands. Now we don't. So. Um, uh, I would say that I'm very proud of Connecticut as uh, my home state, as a state that on a legislative and legal level has been pretty much in the forefront throughout uh, the last 30 years or so in terms of passing good laws um, and um, having a good cultural uh, change um, and environment for uh, LGBT folks. So, you know, the first bill we passed in Connecticut that was a protection for LGBT people was put sexual orientation in the hate crimes law. And that was in 1987. Um, and then we passed the first anti-discrimination law in Connecticut in 1991. But interesting to know that it took 17 years from the time that was first introduced in the Connecticut legislature till the time it was enacted. And in 1991, it added uh, sexual orientation as a category that was uh, prohibited discrimination in our state laws, but it didn't include gender identity and expression until quite a, a while later. Uh, we added that in 2011. So in fact, Connecticut was uh, late to the, um, to the game, I think, in terms of uh, the national movement to protect transgender people against discrimination. But we have now gotten there. And just this year, the Connecticut State Legislature passed a ban on the very dangerous uh, so-called conversion therapy, which is a sort of fake science kind of therapy that harms uh, young LGBT people by trying to convince them that they can be cured of their, um, of their identity. And that's now uh, banned. And certainly uh, one of the biggest successes, of course, marriage equality. Walk us through again what it was like to see that become law in Connecticut. I think we were the third state. We were. And then um, to see it validated um, across the country. Well, I've been in that fight now for quite a while um, and certainly very proud of the organization in Connecticut, Love Makes a Family, that was started in the early 2000s and worked uh, primarily with uh, a legal organization in Boston called GLAAD. And, and then by 2006, I was working on a national level at Lambda Legal in New York. Um, but it was a – people think it happened overnight somehow, but in fact, the first marriage cases that we're familiar with were in the 70s. The first big victory in a legal case was in the 90s in Hawaii, um, but that victory was snatched back by a ballot measure in Hawaii, which changed the constitution of the state of Hawaii. And then the first state victory that was won and then uh, um, uh, stuck was in Massachusetts. That was the Goodrich decision in 2003. And my partner and I, Carolyn, got, uh, Carolyn and I got married on the Cape in 2004 uh, in Massachusetts. So that was exciting. And then we got civil unions passed in the legislature here in the 2005 and became uh, won a, a Connecticut Supreme Court court case uh, in 2008, and as you said, became the third state. What was it that made this movement successful? Because again, um, growing up, as you did, uh, when you did, saying that you know, at one time you and your partner were afraid to hold hands, mm -hmm. uh, people that are raised to believe that same-sex relationships, uh, being gay is unnatural. Um, mm -hmm. How did that movement, how did that belief change? How did this movement become successful? What, was the, what were the, some of the What's factors? The special sauce? The special sauce, yeah. You know, uh, uh, I, one of the things I did write about in the book was that <clears throat> we, we made an intentional pivot in our thinking about uh, talking about our lives and ourselves 
by talking about love and our shared humanity and our commitment to one another rather than talking exclusively about legal rights. Now, legal rights are important, um, but it, it turned out that sharing our humanity was even more compelling and helped us gain more support and more uh, compassion sometimes because there were stories that were happy, but there were also stories that were sad. There were stories about people in illness and in death who were denied access to their partners or who were separated in a hospital emergency room and so on. So sharing stories about love, uh, which is why the title of the book is Love Unites Us, um, was really a more effective political strategy. I also have to say that one of the things that moved our, mo our movement forward was uh, the tragedy of the AIDS epidemic. And so that we became more mobilized and more politicized, but also more aware, and the public around us, our friends and neighbors, became more aware of the importance of protecting relationships and, and taking care of one another and being there in sickness and in health. So those are some of the things that moved our marriage equality movement forward. We're talking about this again during Pride Month. Um, I'm curious, though, when we look at um, pride demonstrations that began after Stonewall and how the um, um, acceptance uh, changed uh, through the years, what about um, if you were a lesbian or a person of color who was gay? How did they become incorporated in a more uh, fulfilling way than just looking at the gay men lifestyle? Well, sure. You know, it's really important to remember historically that the so-called Stonewall riot uh, or the Stonewall uprising, as people like to call it, was led primarily by trans people and uh, many people of color. It was a bar that was uh, used and enjoyed by people who were very gender nonconforming. They were LGBT, including uh, drag queens and uh, uh, transgender people and people of color, and they were the ones who kind of like stood up and said, we are done with being harassed by the police. And so it did turn into a, a multi-day uprising or rebellion. Um, it is true that we continue to struggle, as, as the whole nation does, with issues of racism and um, needing to have uh, uh, looking at the intersections of uh, discrimination against people of color and people who are gender nonconforming, transgender, or any of the other kinds of people on the continuum of sexual expression and identity. Um, so the work is not done. And uh, as a woman and a lesbian, um, we certainly had a, a movement that was equally vibrant and parallel to what was a male-dominated gay rights movement in the early 70s. Um, and we have culture, and we have history, and we have organizing, and we have writing. Um, and then there was a time when I think we all came together politically uh, to form a more kind of strong and unified LGBT movement. Um, and when did that happen, when you became unified? Oh, I don't know a date. <laughs> I don't know if I can tell you when that was exactly, but over time, certainly. And um, I remember if uh, a personal reminiscence being very part of the a lesbian movement and having events that were just lesbian-only space and women's lesbian music festivals and so on in the 70s and 80s um, and becoming more and more um, politically active as a unified movement sometime in the 80s. And as I said, the AIDS epidemic, I think, had a lot to do with bringing us together politically. This is where we live. Uh, in studio with us is Leslie Gable Brett, co-editor of Love Unites Us, Winning the Freedom to Marry in America. She's an LGBT rights activist, former director of education and public affairs at Lambda Legal. Uh, we're talking about LGBT rights uh, in the month of June, a uh, Pride Month. On the phone with us is John Scagliotti, director and producer of a new film, Before Homosexuals. And uh, John, I wanted to go back to you. Uh, when we look at marriage equality, is this something that you ever thought um, would be achieved? Well, um, I certainly, you know, when you look back at history, um, in fact, there were 
sort of marriages that took place within certain cultures, uh, and the whole concept of marriage is is very different in different societies. So here we, uh, marriage is sort of a, as we look at it in America, is sort of a Western concept. We call it a Western concept, and it has sort of rules and regulations that came along with it. Uh, but what was really distinctive in, a, in that is that it also had legal uh, power that was very discriminatory against people who didn't want, you know, who would want to partner up with uh, someone of their own sex. So uh, it was a, a major, major kind of win to struggle for for that as part of the agenda. But it was part of the agenda from um, from the beginning. It's just that we didn't push it as much. There were other things when when the LGBT movement kind of took off. We were still fighting from being kept in jail. And so, um, you know, being put in jail, being arrested uh, was one of the first things. Uh, losing your job, all these things were very big at the beginning. Uh, marriage uh, seemed like kind of, uh, you know, well, that would be fantastic if we get that, but we we got some really survival things to fight for first. And that's what I think what happened in the, the beginning of the movement. It also took time for people to come and get together and come together um, as a as a group to begin to see that they did have uh, political concerns in their lives that needed to be addressed as a group and through um, it also took time to get these legal organizations up uh, which were very important I know when I was arrested um, uh, you know, I, I got the ACLU involved, and that was the first one of the first cases they've ever been involved in, uh, and and we were able to change uh, win actually in the Supreme Court of Massachusetts. And so, John uh, Leslie works for, used to work for Lambda Legal, another yeah. legal advocacy group. Leslie, can you talk about some of that work? I sure can. I mean, uh, Lambda Legal was started also in the early '70s and was responsible for the first big Supreme Court victory called Lawrence v. Texas in 2003 which was uh, the case that overturned the uh, remaining anti-sodomy laws across the country. Uh, and then, of course, Lambda Legal has been fighting for marriage equality in state after state after state, and then was part of the big Supreme Court victory mm-hmm. in 2015. It's a really exciting place oh, to work. We're going to head to break soon, but, but you know, before we get to hear more about the film festival coming up, you know, we're talking a lot about the successes of the LGBT rights movement in this country. We can't forget what's happening in countries abroad, such as in what's going on um, in Indonesia, two gay men recently came for having sex. Well, we're hearing from Human Rights Watch, this anti-gay purge in, in Chechnya. This is very disturbing for people in the, the gay rights community. Yes, it's a very scary time around the world. There are some places that we're all familiar with, and there are places we probably don't hear about in the news. But I also don't want to say that it isn't a scary time in some of the states and parts of this country where there's still particularly uh, assault on the rights of transgender people and particularly uh, transgender youth in schools, big fights that sound as if they're about bathroom usage, but they're really about can you be transgender and can you be safe in the public um, and uh, it, uh, there have been a lot of murders and, and violence against people, particularly transgender people and people of color. So, um, yes, there are scary things around the world, and there are some worrisome mm-hmm. and scary things in this country as well. 
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We'll be back right after the break. We're going to hear more about the Connecticut LGBT Film Festival. We're going to continue this conversation with Leslie and John. And you can join too, 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow... The cats come back to Springfield. On the next Where We Live, we get an inside look inside the amazing world of Dr. Seuss. It's a new museum honoring the life and legacy of children's author and the city's native son, Theodore Geisel. Plus, Margaret Wise Brown's Great Green Room. We'll find out what a new biography reveals about the woman who brought us Goodnight Moon. That's coming up tomorrow. Now, June is LGBT Pride Month, and in our state, one of the events that's been held for 30 years now, they're in the 30th season, is the Connecticut LGBT Film Festival. Joining us in studio now is Shane Engstrom, president of OutFilm Connecticut, director of Connecticut LGBT Film Festival. Shane, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Tell us about the the film festival. 30 years, that's a long time. Where did it begin? Yes, it's a very long time. Uh, It actually began right here in Hartford uh, at Cine Studio, which is on the uh, college campus of Trinity College, um, and it's the Connecticut's longest-running film festival of any kind, um, and it's you know one of uh, Connecticut's um, best and biggest uh, arts and cultural events throughout the year. How did you get involved? Um, I got involved uh, 17 years ago when I was uh, coming out of the closet late in life. <laughs> Um, and I decided I wanted to get involved with something uh, where I could meet some new people who and meet LGBT people in not a bar environment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I just, you know, I always had an interest in independent film and uh, thought this would be a great opportunity to meet some people. You know, throughout the hour, we've been talking about the uh, progression of, of LGBT rights, acceptance at one time in certain ancient, ancient color um ancient cultures, rather, and then seeing things change uh, with the introduction of, of uh, Christianity and, and other religions. But, you know, when you said you came out uh, 17 years ago, what were the circumstances that made you feel comfortable be- being who you were out, out in the open? Um, I don't know. It was just, uh, I think everyone's situation is different, and everyone's um, story is a little different. Mine, um, I just happened to have moved from another state, and... Um, was kind of developing a new set of friends, and I felt the freedom to come out and and to live a, a more authentic life. And you mentioned this film festival was a way uh, for uh, people in the LGBT community to uh, be accepted in a, in a venue that wasn't just a bar or club. How did the how did film play a role in in the movement? Uh, film has played uh, a couple of different roles. There's, you know, the very direct role in which it, it, um, you know, it it illuminates through documentaries, uh, important issues that have gone on through, through the LGBT rights movement. Um, you know, films like uh, the Lavender Scare, which is a film that we're going to be showing uh, next Sunday, um, is a film where Dwight D. Eisenhower, I like Ike. <laughs> Uh, instituted a policy in the 50s of removing all gays and lesbians from government service. And I think we have a clip from that uh, oh. that movie. Let's hear it. I was called to the FBI office. They wouldn't allow legal representation. I was a scared kid. They wouldn't reveal the evidence. They said, we have information. You are homosexual. Do you have any comment? And they would threaten exposure. 
I submitted my resignation. I lost my job at the patent office. That was the end of it. I was out. So tell us more about that movie. Why did you choose to have that screen this year? Um, we liked it particularly because, I mean, it was it was a story that was very real and that hardly anyone knew anything about. I mean, this happened in the 50s, a very McCarthy-style uh, witch hunt, um, and there were so few people who even knew about it because it was just kept on the, the on the down low. It was like, you know, the FBI was involved, and they just went from person to person, and they said, you know, we have sources who tell us that you have frequented, you know, you know gay bars and, and this and that, and they just, they didn't even have to fire them. They just said, you need to, you know, you need to resign quietly or, or we will expose you. Um, and so, you know, this is a, ch- it's not really even LGBT history. It's, this is a chapter in American history mm-hmm. um, that people don't, don't know about. So we felt it important to bring, bring it to light. Mm-hmm. What are some other other genres? I understand international films. There's a lot that are being featured. Yeah, we have, um, I think we have like 17 different countries that have uh, films in this in this year's festival. And we've always been a very international uh, film festival. A lot of a lot of great stories are being told around the world. Um, you know, and, and, you know, I said that the film festival tells the st- LGBT history and is involved in the movement directly, but also just indirectly by kind of documenting our stories. In the past, um, uh, LGBT people were portrayed as villains and perverts and or pathetic creatures to be pitied, but now um, we've reclaimed our voices and our lives and our own stories through film. And, um, you know, some of the some of the subject matter in the films today kind of tell history uh, just in the fact that, you know, like one of our one of our closing night films called B and B starts off with the premise of a gay couple who had successfully sued a bed and breakfast owner who hadn't allowed them to share a bed in the previous year. So it's like these kind of stories um, and LGBT history have have woven their way into the storylines, um, and we have a lot of like short films um, that are from all over the world that that talk about. Um, very contemporary subjects, including like Syrian refugees, uh, the transgender bathroom rights, um, and you know, a young man who attempts to cross the Mexican border to be with his boyfriend. You know, there are lots, lots of lots of very topical issues that are covered in in our stories. Another uh, movie that's being screened is called Signature Move uh, about a Pakistani American woman who's a lesbian and she hasn't yet told her mother she's gay. Here's a clip from that film. Mothers and daughters aren't friends in our culture. Well, not my family. We love each other, we care for each other, but even wanting to be friends, my mom would say, Zanab, that's a very American concept. (laughs) <laughs> so a, a more of a contemporary film. Yes, exactly. And and that's uh, another of our closing night films uh, that'll be showing at the Wadsworth Athenaeum on June 10th and we're lucky in that the the film's director Jennifer Reeder and also the actress you just heard uh Fazia Mirza, she's at, they're both going to be coming to the festival and that's what um is one of the great things about a film festival is that you get to the audience gets to engage with the filmmakers and actors and you know, after the screening, they'll have a Q&A, and then we're going to have the big closing night party of the festival. Uh, it's a great way to bring the community together and to bring something a little unique. Um, and, you know, it's not just 
going out to the movies at your local Cineplex. This is bringing the community together. And, and who is your audience? I would imagine that when this first started, you'd mentioned, you know, wanting to be involved in something where um, there's ex- uh, a, a welcoming uh, community of LGBT um, people and, and uh, supporters. Uh, we're not going to be judged. But as you see society changing, more acceptance, mm-hmm. um, do you find that your audience has changed? Um, I think the audience has changed over time. Um, you know, I, I remember... Uh, I was talking to uh, one of our founders, Terry Reed, um, the other day, and she talked about the very first film festival and how um, a, a news reporter showed it up at the very first festival, and and people were like panicking; they were afraid they were going to be outed by on the news. And you know, it was very. The news reporter said, "You know, this is this is a political thing. I mean, someone had there had been a very brutal um, gay murder." just the week before the very first festival and um and you know this this was it was in the news at the time and it was it was a place for people to come together and um back then it, i think it was more exclusively just the arts community and and the and the gay community but uh over time it's really broadened to you know anyone who enjoys um quality film would enjoy the film festival these are not you know homemade homemade films they're they're really beautiful stories and well-made um documentaries and and feature films and romantic comedies and um just some beautiful stories and so allies are certainly welcome um anyone from the lgbt community it's a it's a it's a chance to get together and celebrate we're almost out of time i wanted to go back to leslie gable brett again co-editor of the book love unites us winning the freedom to marry in america you're a west hartford resident tell me about um your experience with the film festival as a, as a welcoming place and as a very important um event in the arts community well i remember the first film festivals and carolyn and i were among those who went and i also remember the environment that uh, shane was just talking about where there was uh, a murder and there was uh, fear in the community but the arts is a place to tell our stories and to be uplifted and also to have our emotions. Sometimes the stories are not happy, but they are real and they and we see ourselves reflected. I, I was uh, reminiscing with Carolyn that one of my favorite old lesbian movies was a movie called Personal Best, which was one of the first movies I saw where uh, strong, healthy lesbian women were, um, you know, the heroes of the story and it was a fun movie and it was about athletics. Um, and, and, uh, and Leslie, we're glad to hear about that recommendation, but we want to thank you, Leslie Gable, Brett, also Shane Engstrom. We're going to have information at wmpr.org slash where we live on the film festival. Also, thanks to John Scagliotti. And thanks for listening.